You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, Devoted listeners, it's so good to be back with you. I'm just coming off of a really great weekend where we had our annual event for Athey Women called New Mercies. And it was so good to actually see some of you guys there. And, you know, I know we had it out there online. If you were not able to make it and you want to see what that was like and kind of hear the teaching that we did, you can go onto our Athey YouTube channel. So, okay, I should rephrase that. You go to YouTube and then you subscribe to Athey Women and then you can see all the stuff we're doing. And I would really recommend, guys, that's just a really great way to see all the things that we pop onto that channel. And a lot comes up. And if you subscribe to it, then you just get alerted when we have new stuff on there. And then also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, that way you can see, like I told you guys, that I had a little goof, right? And I published two podcasts on one day. So yeah, I felt really brilliant about that. But I have to tell you guys, I do think, and it's just so gracious of the Lord to use our errors, because I actually heard from a lot of you guys on both podcasts, that it was just exactly what you needed for that time. And isn't that just so good of the Lord? Yep, I messed up. I apparently can't type or read a calendar. But the Lord used that because some of you guys really needed to hear the Onward podcast that week. And some of you guys really needed to hear Under the Broom Tree. So I'm thankful that the Lord goes before us and behind us and just uses all the things to his glory. So that was a blessing out of my little oops there. But like I said, if you do subscribe, then you can see those and you'll be able to just get alerts to them right away. So there's that. Now, when we chatted at New Mercies and in part of that, I talked to you guys about my desire to really keep the gospel front and center for us this year and how important that is. And that can look like a lot of different things. I mean, it's obviously the most important is the eternal reason that the gospel is so important, because if we don't accept the gospel and the work that Jesus did for us, then we have no hope, right? I mean, it's literally that dismal. But we also talked about what that is, knowing the gospel, how it changes our daily lives, and just knowing the real gospel and how important that is. And We need to know the real thing so that we're not swept away by the things that are false. Ephesians 4.14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Guys, don't be ignorant of this. There is a lot of either crazy whacked doctrine out there. There's a lot of things of human cunning and craftiness and really just flat out deceitful schemes. And even sometimes we often talk about how they sound really good. And sometimes these things seem very well intentioned, perhaps even sometimes I don't think they are well intentioned. But often, there is a message there that quickly distorts what the real gospel is. And you might get sucked in. You might get sucked in if you don't really know what the real thing is. And so we talk about here all the time on the podcast that we want to be women devoted to God's word. And and I think this idea of knowing the real gospel, this just goes hand in hand with this. It's just so, so important that as we hear things in our culture, that we take that thing and then we see how it lines up in scripture. It's just really important to do this. So some of the issues that come up today, they are secondary issues, we call those, or tertiary issues. They're not salvation centric, but 
This is where you have to be really, really discerning because sometimes you will hear an idea or a thought that somebody puts forth. Maybe they're real passionate about it. And like I said before, it can sound real good. But perhaps when you hold that thing up against scripture, we find that it is diminishing to who Jesus is or what he came to do. And it weakens who Jesus is, his work on the cross to save us. So when that happens, then that thing that maybe didn't look like a major issue, well, then that becomes a gospel issue. It's sneaky, but it happens. And so we just want to be really careful about that. And that's why we just want to kind of keep reiterating, what is the real gospel? When we talk about the things that Jesus did and coming to save us, just, you know, the gospel is so simple and so foundational to us as Christians, but it just is so important. And we really need to see how some of these false ideas that culture is giving us kind of start sucking away at what Jesus is and what he came to do. So when the Lord lays these things in my heart, I kind of want to take a stab at some of these and, and work with them with you and see what scripture says. And so today, the thing that I want to look at is shame versus sin. And specifically focusing first all on shame, because this is sort of a buzzword right now, I think that would be putting it lightly, but it's a really culturally loaded term, I think. When my husband and I were talking about this, that's how he phrased shame. He said it's very culturally loaded. And I think that's a really great way of putting that because there's books written about this, guys. There is a zillion quotes on this on what shame is today. So let's dig into this a little bit, but understand my reason, my goal from the very beginning spoiler alert here, does culture's definition of this, of shame, does it match with what the Bible says? Does it diminish what the gospel is? And I think it does. So track with me here on where I'm going. But the first thing, as we often talk about, we always want to look at what our terms is. And I'm a old school debater. Well, okay, like really old school. Like I think I was in junior high, guys, but debate was cool. I loved it. But you always define your terms when you're in debate. And it's so foundational. I wish, I guess, more kids learned how to really do old school debate because if you don't define your terms and you don't start from the same definition of what you're arguing for, it just kind of falls apart. We do a terrible job of this today. And I think largely because social media makes everything like a soundbite, right? Somebody often will throw maybe a small grenade out there on social media with a term. And if you kind of watch the comments, which ugh, that could just be a not a fun experience anyway. But if you read some of those, you kind of start to see where once you get to about the 20th comment, you're like, huh what word are we even talking about here? So I think shame is one of these. So let's look at first at just what shame means. And I love to go back to my old school dictionaries, but I have to tell you, I contrasted two of my old dictionaries. I have one that I really love, but it's a 1970s. And you know, boy, I tell you, when the 1960s, 1970s, the whole cultural revolution kind of started, some not great things happened. I can't point to the fact that that is exactly what changed some of my definitions in my dictionary. But I did notice in the study of this one on shame that there was some contrast here. My old 1970s-ish dictionary, it said shame is a painful feeling of guilt, incompetence, indecency, or blameworthiness, dishonor, or disgrace. Okay. Okay, I get that. When I looked at my 1950s dictionary, here's what it said. It said painful feeling of humiliation caused by the consciousness of guilt, reproof incurred because of wrongdoing. 
Okay, so the 1950s one added this a whole concept, really, that shame is consciousness or the knowing that you've done something wrong. It says the reproof incurred because of wrongdoing. I find it interesting that a 1970s one actually took out the whole piece about consciously understanding and, and knowing that there was wrongdoing involved. And instead, it just focused on what it said was the painful feeling of guilt, incompetence and decency. Now, to its credit, if you go ahead and look up guilt, guilt is the state of one who has committed a crime or is liable to a penalty. So now, again, that's my old 1950s dictionary. I guess I actually didn't look up the modern definition of guilt. That could be concerning. Who knows? But so guilt is understanding that you have done something wrong and shame is what's coming from that. So now I'm going to give you guys a bunch of definitions. And I know sometimes this gets like, OK, wow, you're losing me in the third line. So maybe back this up and even listen to these definitions a couple times because make your brain work a little bit. But I can't think it's important to understand what we're talking about. If you look at like an ethics dictionary on what shame is. This is what it says. It says it's the feeling of psychological pain that follows or is experienced when a person realizes that an act has been committed that does not live up to ideals or expectations. Oh, goodness. Okay, so to summarize that, that's just how we feel like, ugh, when we, we feel like we've not done what we were supposed to do. We have failed in an area that we know that there was a standard that we were supposed to reach and we didn't. Okay, the definition continues. The sense of discomfort that arises in the wake of sensed failure. It is an ethical term, but here's where shame is the sense of a moral discomfort arising from failure of something that is deemed, here's what the actual ethics dictionary says, deemed sinful, such as an act that violates a known moral standard. Viewed from an ethical perspective, shame may be seen as a sense of moral guilt. Now, here's where I hope you're still tracking with me here because I know this is kind of a long definition. But here's where it points out some distinctions here. And it says shame and guilt are not synonymous. This is, I think, interesting as you contrast it with our culture. But shame and guilt are not synonymous, however, in that the latter, meaning guilt, carries objective connotations as well as a subjective sense, perhaps. But shame is best seen as limited to a subjective feeling itself. Okay, so those two things, then it's saying that guilt is the objective consequence of the sin and shame is the subjective feeling. So, okay, long definitions here, but now let me try to bring this back more in the modern vernacular a little bit. If you Google and you just look for quotes on shame, do you know how many come up? 938 quotes just on one site about shame. This is a popular concept right now. Now, what I was looking for were both some old school definitions and quotes about shame, but also some to contrast that with some modern ones, because there's a popular modern author right now that does a lot of work on shame. And she defines shame as she says, shame is the most powerful master emotion. She says it's the fear that we're not good enough. Okay, so there's pieces of that quote that I can go, okay. I can buy into the fact that we're not good enough, for sure. But she would offer prescriptives, I suppose, to be able to overcome that feeling so that you don't have to be miserable in the fact that you're not enough because largely, especially the message to women is absolutely, guys, you are enough in every possible way. And we know that while we are enough, it is only through Jesus and what he did for us because we're going to talk a lot about sin 
And this whole idea of shame and and the guilt that we incur because of our sin, guys, that's got to be dealt with. We can't just leave that out there and just think that that's just going to fix itself. So we'll talk a lot about that. But in all these quotes about shame, I want to give you another little highlight of a quote that this guy, his name is Richard Rohr. You've probably heard of him. And here's what I'm just going to tell you. Then I don't quote this guy very often because you guys know that I really like to point you guys to scripture and I'd rather you just in the real thing. So I rarely even list a name unless I can just emphatically say that a person is 100% a false teacher. This is somebody that I can absolutely say is a false teacher. So I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Man, if you're reading a book by Richard Rohr, or if a friend said, yeah, this guy's really great, run for your life. No, mm -mm. it is just be kind, but emphatically, no. But he likes to say that what it's all about is finding who your true self is. And if we can just find what our true self is, then then that deals with our shame. And, and we're able to have absolution there just by finding our true self. It's just so wrong. But what does the Bible say about shame? I want to look at this in a couple contexts, because I also I don't want to leave out the New Testament of what Jesus did, where he literally takes on our shame, because that is so important. So I need to come back to that. But I want to go back to where we first see shame, and that's in Genesis and in the garden itself. So we've got the story in Genesis of original sin, when man willfully chooses to disobey God and sins. And we see in Genesis 3.10, where it tells us, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, did God really not know where Adam and Eve were? I think he did. I picture sadness in his voice, I think, and just a kindness, I guess there. But I feel like you can almost feel the sadness in his voice. Where are you? And he said, meaning Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's in Genesis 3.10. So why did they feel shame? Why did they all of a sudden realize that they were naked? Well, it's because of, it's the consequence, it's that objective reality of the guilt because they had done wrong. So in this way, shame being the subjective feeling of guilt, but for a legitimate thing that they had done wrong. They had chosen to sin against God and they brought sin into the world by their willful disobedience of God. Now, point of clarification about shame, because we are going to talk about this with all the things that we put on ourselves. You know, if you take the modern day definition of what that author today says, that shame is the fear of not being enough. Okay, should shame ever drive us to a place under condemnation? Should that feeling of guilt, that rightful feeling of guilt that I have sinned, I have done wrong, should that ever drive us to a place of condemnation? And that is absolutely no. I love that we have Romans 8.1 to look at that. And, and I'm going to read a couple verses in that passage, but Romans 8 speaks specifically to this, that there, we should not feel any condemnation for a very important reason. But here it is, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
this goes on. I love this whole passage. Honestly, read Romans 1, 8, 1 through 6. It's all so good. But no, we should not feel condemned unto our sin. Not condemned when that very first line, we're in Christ Jesus. And this is where there's this really a tension and a conflict between what modern day is telling us by your shame is just needs to be dealt with by finding your true self and just owning who you are and all kinds of things that don't make you make any changes necessarily. They just say that you can just go on sinning and it's fine. You just need to not feel shame about those things because that's who you are. And that is diminishing to sin, which then makes it so why did Jesus have to come and die if our sin isn't so bad? But we shouldn't feel condemned unto that because of Christ Jesus, because he took that shame on us. And so let's even think back to Hebrews 12, 2, where it says that Jesus was the one that took the shame for us. That passage, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's that word shame. So I love this because I feel like it's so comforting to know that it's not telling us that we're not going to feel shame. In fact, it's saying that, yeah, there's actually a subjective feeling, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They felt a subjective feeling of shame because of the guilt of their sin. But unlike the modern definition of shame, where it tells us we just have to go find ourselves, this tells us that we have to place that shame at the feet of Jesus. And that he is the one that takes that on. But this passage here in Hebrews 12, 2, despising the shame, what, what does that mean? How did he become shame? When I was looking at this in Wearsby's commentary, he kind of broke down several ways in which Jesus endured shame. And we could see how this would feel if you kind of put yourself in his shoes. But he despised the shame. He didn't welcome it, but he did endure it. But he bore shame in a couple ways. Shameful accusation. They blasphemed against him, right? They mocked him. Even though when he was on the cross, he was praying for them, people were mocking him. They beat him, like shameful stuff. The cross would have been the most shameful thing to ever have to be put on. They put a crown of thorns on his head and made fun of him and called him the king of the Jews and put a robe around him. I mean, there was all kinds of things that would have been degrading to Jesus. Shame. Totally bore the shame. Now, we know that he had never sinned, but he bore our sins. Scripture just gives such a beautiful picture of really what we do with this whole thing of shame. And so as we read what is in the real thing, what the real gospel says about what we do with feelings of shame and feeling like we're not enough, Oh, there's so much absolution and peace in what scripture provides, as opposed to the contrast of what the world provides. I thought it interesting when I told you I, I looked up all those quotes and I found like 938. You can tell as time has gone past. I saw a little bit of a discrepancy in between my 1950 dictionary and my 1970s dictionary. The word theft is real. <laughs> we just change the things that words mean over time. And they kind of evolve into these things that you have to go back to the original. And that's why we always want to go back to scripture and go, wow, what was really meant by shame in scripture? But it was interesting to me to read the contrast of some of the new quotes versus the old. Some of the old quotes, I loved this one. This is by Anne Bradstreet, who was a poet, but she was a Puritan. And she said, sin and shame ever go together. 
he that would be freed from the last must be sure to shun the company of the first. Isn't it interesting? Now here, she's taking it as these two, they're kind of going hand in hand. It is the feeling of shame and guilt that can sometimes keep you from the sin in the first place. It says in the Talmud, actually, those are the Jewish writings. It says, he who hath shame seldom sins. Isn't that interesting? They're almost embracing the fact that, hey, yeah, that memory, that realization that you're going to experience a feeling of shame for doing something will keep you, in fact, from sin. But today we continue to see this just changing the definitions a little bit. And now it's not that sin is really our problem, but really that shame is our problem. And there's a whole lot that is kind of encompassed in what falls into shame that sometimes even as things of sin that they would say, well, we shouldn't even feel shame about those things when they could be things that actually are defined as sin in scripture. That quote I gave you guys earlier, she says that shame is the most powerful emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. Exactly, right? We aren't good enough. But I do love what Jesus does here. So even if you go back to Genesis and we saw when Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness and they needed covering, what does it say that they, Adam, made his coverings out of? Well, he made it out of fig leaves. Well, I've never been to the Middle East, but I've heard and I've read that that is not the best fabric you could pick to make yourself some clothes. It's not a good call. I guess they're scratchy and rough and it would just be really brutal. But I kind of like this picture because it sort of shows our own ineptitude, perhaps at covering our shame. I like even that picture, because then what was Jesus's response to this? So then God in Genesis 321, it says the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. First blood sacrifice in the Bible right there. It doesn't say that, but guess what? If you're going to get skins that you made something out of, something had to die. I'm just going to go ahead and give a shout out and thank you to Through the Bible Teaching for that one right there, because I don't think I would have caught that because it doesn't describe the sacrifice. It doesn't say that the Lord God went into the garden and chose an animal. It, It doesn't say any of that. But it's there, isn't it, guys? Because it says that he made skins and clothed them. So already we see all the way back in Genesis that this foreshadowing that there is going to be a blood sacrifice that is needed to cover our sins. It's a a foreshadowing of Jesus even on the cross, right? But I also love the end result. So when Adam chose to get his sewing machine out and make some things out of some fig leaves, it was not a real good result. It didn't do a good job at covering his shame. It didn't do it at all, right? When Jesus did it, he goes and he clothes them with skin. Now we know, and people have used leather for millennia in making clothes. It's a good product for that. It covers, it protects, it's soft. I mean, so just contrast the two things here of a scratchy fig leaf and on the other side, the nicest cowhide soft leather that you can imagine. And I think you get at this kind of a cool picture of what happens when we try to cover our shame a scratchy fig leaf, and when the Lord covers our shame, it actually does its job. So I think that that is a neat picture that we get all the way back in Genesis and a good foreshadowing of Jesus and what was going to be needed right here. Wages of sin is death. There was sin in the garden. There was a shame that was resulted from that sin. Adam and Eve knew they had a guilt and they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it. And then right there, we do see that it's God that covered their sin.
So I have to wonder, why is this idea of making shame such a big deal right now and really making sin not such a big deal right now? We've made it that shame is the thing. And modern thought leaders seem to tell us and purport that we can deal with our shame by owning our shame and by speaking our shame out. Actually, that same author, she says something about how we can take power away from shame by making it speakable. She says the thing that makes shame have power is when it stays unspeakable. And again, I have to point this out, guys, because it's another thing where you can hear something and go, "Mm, there's kind of a slice of truth to that. Because when we don't speak our sin, when we do try to keep that thing secret and, oh, we can't possibly tell anybody what we've done. They will. They won't love me. They won't respect me. They just can't know. Those are lies that the enemy tells us to keep us from confessing our sin. But confessing our sin is actually a biblical thing to do. It says in James 5, 16, it says that we are to confess our sins one to another. So when you hear that, that you're taking the power away from shame by speaking it out, Well, that's sort of true. But see, again, let's figure out what definitions we're speaking about and what is the goal that we're trying to do. Because if the goal is to just take shame and just embrace who we are and make sure we're just not ashamed or embarrassed of the things that we are, that's different than what the biblical definition is of, for example, what Adam and Eve experienced as shame in the garden. Shame, by definition, is because of our guilt and the things that we know that we have done wrong. But I think the reason that this does get really popular to talk about shame, and especially according to their definition, because they want to make it about you. It's about finding, and I'm not trying to overly simplify the argument with shame, but I do find that it gets so complicated and it doesn't need to be. Because at the end of the day, go back and look at what the real definition is and look at what the Bible says. And it's probably going to save you about 12 hours of reading on a topic that is going to spiral you somewhere else. But it is highly popular right now to focus on you. It's so popular, right? Because if you can find your true self and experience the peace within you, and I mean, my goodness, guys, that's just a dangerous little pronoun right there. Anytime you hear one of these things and either that's right in the main topic sentence, you, or is in the solution that you are the solution to whatever the problem is they're presenting, red flags, red flags, red flags. We did an episode last year sometime on idolatry. Did I call it idolatry 2020? I'm like the worst at titling things. But my point in that episode was to talk about the fact that we can kind of look at idolatry and go, oh, well, we don't worship idols. But my goodness, idolatry is huge right now because the idol is ourselves. And we are fed this as women from every possible avenue. And in this area of shame, we see it a ton because they're saying that you really need to look within you and accept who you are when that isn't what the answer is. There is no absolution in that. And this is where this does become, just to remind you again, a gospel issue. Because when it all boils down to being about you and about me and what I need to do to speak out my shame or embrace my shame or whatever the things that they're recommending that you do, if it is about you and it's not about what Jesus did to cover that shame and the sin that we just have, 
then that is a gospel issue, right? And the gospel says it's not about you. It's not about me at all. It's about Jesus and his death as a sacrifice for our sins. I want to take you guys to another place in scripture where I just think we see a really cool model of what real confession should look like and what it looks like when we do experience shame, but what we can do with that. It's David in the Psalms writes in Psalm 51, and I'm going to read quite a few verses of this, but what did David do? David, you know, man after God's own heart, so many amazing Psalms that David wrote. However, David got caught up in big time sin. He had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then sin upon sin. Then he ends up conspiring to murder her husband, which then leaves him just drowning in shame, right? But he didn't really see his shame right away. And we read the story in the Bible that Nathan the prophet comes to David and he presents this analogy to him. Well, he doesn't know that. He's saying, I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells him the story about this family that had this one little sheep. And then there was the person next door that had a whole herd of sheep. And the wealthy man came and took the family with just their one little pet sheep and killed their sheep. And David's enraged, right? And he says that that man should surely die. And Nathan the prophet turns to David and he says, you are that man. And it was then that David's eyes were opened to his sin and the shame just was more than he could take. And I love how what he does with his shame, because it certainly was not the answer for him to figure out to be absolved of his sin in some way by just accepting who he is and accepting that he just has this proclivity to, you know, not be faithful and to murder. I mean, these were some really big sins here, right? So Psalm 51, it shows us what he does with this. And he wrote this right after Nathan the prophet confronted him on his sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is a biblical model of what you do when you are convicted of your sin. You experience that subjective feeling, that feeling of shame because of your sin. But what does David do? He doesn't, he confesses it, right? He says that you, because of your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, atone for them, make them as if they aren't there. He washes him thoroughly from iniquity and cleanses him from sin. That's what he is knowing that it's the Lord that does those things. And I read that and I feel like, oh man, I wish that our world would get that part. I wish that they would get that, you know, it's really not about trying to find the ways that we are good enough or that we just need to accept that this is just who we are. We need to make peace with ourselves. It's just not about that. 
it's a dangerous slope to go on because how many excuses will we make for things that we just need to accept about ourselves, perhaps, that the Lord would say, look to my word and what does my word say about that? Because if it's a sin issue, if it's something that there's sin in your life, well, then we need to do what James 5.16 says, and we need to confess that sin one to another. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us our sins. But the beauty is that he does that. He forgives us of our sins, and our sins are no more. In some ways, you look at it and you go, wow, that's a whole lot easier than a 12-volume series or a conference on shame and what you need to do with it and finding peace within yourself. And it's just sad because there is no peace within ourselves. We need to have the attitude that David had here. And we need to just take that attitude, realizing that when we sin, we're sinning against God. It's also giving proper, I think, weight and value to our sin. Not that we want to like just heap sin upon sin upon ourselves, because again, we're not condemned by our sin because of Jesus. We need to take those to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. But we can't just scooch them under the rug either and just pretend that that's not there. Because I think that's another thing that seems to be a little bit of a, one of the wicked schemes that are out here right now is that that might be sin for this person, but that's not sin for me. That should ring in your ears. as like, ah, oh, you are denying truth right there. And we know that there is truth. There is one truth. There's not many truths. We can't look at things and go, okay, well, just because that registers a sin for you, that doesn't mean it registers a sin for me. That's taking it and making scripture not our standard. And our goal, of course, is we want to just go, hey, we want to be women that are fully devoted to the scriptures. And we want to look at what Jesus did for our shame and how he covered it so beautifully. The last thing I want to add, just to sort of redeem perhaps what the world's done with this strange new definition that they've given us of shame. I do want to remind us of some of the scriptures in the New Testament where Paul is telling us not to be in shame or to feel ashamed, but he's telling us to not be ashamed. Remember in Romans 1.16, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I want to leave us with that because let's look at this with the confidence we can have in the gospel, knowing that we don't have to feel shame. We don't have to feel these things because we have accepted his mercy and the grace of the cross. What a beautiful thing that we get and how freeing that is. And then I hope that we will then take this and, yeah, study these scriptures and ask the Lord, hey, Lord, help me to not be deceived by some of these messages that would sneak in. And maybe it'll even help you to have a good word to be able to confidently speak to when a friend comes up to you and wants to talk to you about shame and that it's about accepting things and whatever the things are telling you. Even if you don't have an answer to every little argument that they may give, that's okay challenge them and you to go to scripture for that answer. But be confident about that. I love Paul's word right there that says, let's not be ashamed of the gospel. It seems like why would we be ashamed, right? This is such a better solution. This is the solution, the only solution for our sin is the gospel. That is so encouraging to me. And I hope it is to you as well. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of AV Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at avcreek.com.